Hey, Brandon. Hey, Joseph. How are you? Not too bad. A bit cold out here, but can't complain. Yeah, where are you at? I'm in Illinois. Uh, where exactly, though? Uh, sorry, uh, normal. Right oh, uh, okay. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, you're about three hours away from me. I'm over here in St. Louis. Yeah, not too far. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, thanks for joining me. I'm taking time out of your schedule to join me. Uh, no problem. No problem. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, do you want to get into this? Yeah, let's do it. Let's yeah. Do it. Um, so the reason why I started this podcast was I have, like, I recognize some of my friends didn't really understand what ag was and what was happening around ag. Cause like, there's so many cool stuff and there's so much innovation and exciting new things happening in agriculture and like food industry related. So I just kind of when I started this and my blog, just to educate like my friends and like just people my age, like around what's happening around agriculture. Just like give um my audience who may not know you, um, we met at AFA, a uh, small plug <laughs> at AFA's leaders conference. And um we just got a chance to con- uh, connect and uh, talk. So um, just a bit about you, um, you're the chief operating officer at the Yield Lab Institute. Um, you double majored at UC Berkeley in chemical and uh, engineering. Um, after that, you kind of bounced around, you got your MBA and yeah, you're here at the Yield Lab. Yeah, yeah, you did a, you did a little homework on me. I'm impressed, I'm impressed. Yeah, yeah, uh, I noticed that... Um, you interned whilst you were getting your MBA, you entered at um, Covercrest. I did. I did. Um, Covercrest is an interesting startup that was based, it's founded and based here in St. Louis. So they're working on, so they've been able to domesticate a, a weed derived from Pennycress that's grown primarily in the Midwest and are looking to actually launch and commercialize it this year into a, a, cash, a cash cover crop. Um, if you're so for your audience and for your um, folks, a cover crop is typically a crop that corn and soy farmers use in between rotations. It's mainly been used historically to protect um, the soil from erosion, maintain biodiversity, among other things. But it doesn't generate any any revenue. So it's, it's strictly just there for, um, you know, preservation uh, purposes, if you will. Right. So that way they can continue to maintain yields with corn and, and soy. So. Um, the crop itself has historically not generated any kind of, you know, cash or revenue. But what Covercrest is doing now is, is they developed a, a crop, they're branding and calling Covercrest, that they believe will be a, a cash generating crop, a third revenue generating crop for corn and soy farmers in between their rotations. And so what the crop, what the crop it does is it produces really small fines uh, seed that you can process into um, a number of different end uses, one of which are biorenewables. So you can use that seed for biorenewable fuel. Um, another use is you can actually extract the oil and protein out of that for animal feed. Um, and there's a, there's a few other um, uses as well for as far as the oil content. But it's an interesting crop. It's an interesting crop that they think they have um, uh, developed here and, and could be deployed for, uh, you know, the Midwest and corn and soy farmers here. So I'm excited to see where, where, they're, where they're headed. Yeah, it's kind of interesting seeing like what they're developing. Um, it's funny because last year I'm a part of a, um, an organization called NEMA, 
and the project we worked on was um, a Covercrest, a project similar to Covercrest. So we had Christine Handel. I don't know if you know Christine. I do. I do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She came and talked to us about um, um, Covercrest and what you guys were working on and how we could um, market our thing. So, yeah, it's yeah. Kind of small world. It is. It is. In fact, I think she works with a few um, researchers. Or I think there's a actually there's a scientist, I believe, that's there in, at Illinois State, which is where you go to school. Right. That they yeah. I believe they've helped do the conduct the research and domesticate it um, into co- into commercial production. So, yeah. Yeah. Dr. Riker, you helped introduce us. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of interesting seeing where um, bio um, diesel crops are going to head into. Cause I always have this conversation with my friends. Would you rather get an electric vehicle like a Tesla? Would you get like a bio, a car that runs on biofuel? Which one would you rather get? Most people, and I always tell them, always start the question with, both have the same impact on the environment. Both um, both will impact the environment negatively. So which one would you choose? And for the most part, um, everyone always picks like a test, always picks the electric vehicle or the Tesla in each instance. So it's going to be kind of interesting. I know your thoughts on it, how you market biodiesel fuels as an alternative use to electric vehicles. Yeah, it, well... It's funny you bring that up just because it's, I still, I still think it's in very early day one, day two stages of its, of its development, its growth as a, as a marketable and usable fuel, Um, you know, for, for the biodiesel, biorenewable space, the thing that they have, you know, kind of uh, unfortunately going against them is they've got the, the background and context on, um, when we, when the big push, you know, in the mid to late nineties on, on bioethanol, um, bioethanol and, and corn, and that ended up really causing a lot of, of havoc with corn prices and food and, and among other things. So, um, I, I feel like there's still that little bit of bad taste in, in folks mouth when now they re re re-engage and reemerge this conversation about biodiesel, um, fuels, not just for automobiles, but even for, for aviation. If you follow that space too, there's a big push for sustainable aviation fuel. Um, I think for, for my perspective and from what I, I hear from, you know, farmers and others, farmers of course would be very, very interested in it. You know, that just, that creates another potential new market, right? You know, they're not just going growing corn or soy for, yeah. for food, you know, it can be used for fuel, um, the big thing, though, is is there isn't enough uh, processing or infrastructure to process all of that um, soy or corn or whatever that that is for bio for bio diesel diesel fuels. So um, until there's significant investment or significant um, capital into that kind of processing or infrastructure required to do that, um, we're we're in the very very early early stages of that, um, and they're going to have to have a you know a couple of, of you know example use cases. That that demonstrate that it works, um, that that you can work it at a at a at pilot scale and hopefully at a, a you know even larger scale, because what they're looking at is a is shifting a you know um, shifting a, you know entire uh, economies or entire value chains to to meet a a, a new market. So um, not to sound skeptical, but it, it but it does it's a it's a long ways away from being there. But it could be it could be interesting. It could, it could pose an interesting challenge for uh, electrific- electrification or electrical vehicles, so. I think one of the things I've talked about with people um, and like one of the questions that's been posed, that was posed with my marketing group is, well, 
even once you do process it and, and, and turn it into a biodiesel, who do you sell it to? Who's the next end produ- Who's the next um, end producer? How do you make your buck? So, I mean, it was logistically like we spoke. The next logical thing is to sell it to like an airline or a car manufacturer. But then again, like how do you get car manufacturers like Chevrolet, Ford to like start making, um, start turning their engines um, fully into like biodiesel, accepting um, biodiesel only. Right. Right. So that's, uh, that's where, you know, I think if it's trying to, trying to convince entire airlines or that industry to start, you know, adopting or accepting that's going to be a bit tough, but where I think, you know, you could, where that biodiesel has some, can gain some traction is if, you know, you start to work, work that in or, or build some use cases or, or success cases with equipment manufacturers and farming, right? You know, John Deere is another is a great example of that. I don't know if John Deere is is dabbling in that space. I, in fact, I'm just out of curiosity. I'd, I'd have to look that up and just to see what they're what they're doing. Um, but it would be really interesting to see if there are some of the, some farm equipment folks like that that could perhaps start to think about you know how, sourcing inputs for their fuel for all of their equipment um, in that way, um, building some use cases and see if that, if that helps the bottom line for John Deere, right. Um, and, and, how, you know, being able to operate their equipment or, or manage costs or inputs better. Um, you can, you can be sure there definitely will start to deploy, you know, money and capital towards that. Right. I mean, if it, if it, if it definitely drives the the bottom line and it's a good story to tell to, um, you know, investors in the public, right. That, that, that they're, equipment now runs on, you know, the sustainable input or sustainable fuel. Um, that's a great message. That's a, especially nowadays with the focus on ESGs, that's a, that's another positive, that's another good message to, to, to share with the public. So. Just along the lines of sustainability, like people in my generation, um, there's a big emphasis on like being sustainable and trying to be health conscious, like with what you intake, what impacts the planet and like what you're um, consuming impacts the planet. I noticed one of the companies you invested, um, your company invested in is called Food Shed IO. Small plug. <laughs> they invest, um, they help connect, um, correct me if I'm wrong, local farmers, like wholesale distribution centers. And I, always, and I thought that's like very unique because like everyone wants to eat healthy and everyone wants to buy from like your local farmer. But sometimes it's kind of hard to do that. And especially like if you're in a food desert in a situation like that, it's kind of hard, like getting fresh produce. So, yeah, yeah, no, agreed, agreed. It's you're seeing an increased push on transparency, transparency in the value chain, you know, like consumers of your age and, and, you know, in between myself and you are, are, are wanting to be more aware of, you know, where, what were all the things that went into making the, you know, the chocolate bar or the, you know, the granola bar, whatever it is that I ate, right. Was it sustainably sourced? Was it ethically sourced? Um, you know, what region of the world did the, the corn or the soy or the cocoa come from? Um, so you're seeing a, a you know, increased awareness and, um, and also that there, there's an increased awareness and, and I think drive, like you said, of trying to buy more local, more local, more fresh, you know, you're, 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 you saw disruptions to the supply chain and value chain, you know, the last 18 months with COVID. And then I think that heightened the awareness, as you highlighted, of people wanting to be able to buy, buy things they know are fresh, that are, that are safe and sourced locally and not be dependent upon 
um, you know, having strawberries or berries all year round when truthfully they're, they're really seasonal. Um, and unfortunately, when you get a, a disruption like we've had at the ports on the West Coast or, or a shortage of truck drivers and those things not showing up on the grocery aisle for a couple of weeks. Right. So um, and, and that also drives, I think, a ton of activity also in another vertical in ag tech, which is indoor ag, indoor controlled environment agriculture, where you're growing things under a, a you know, in a controlled environment or a box, if you will, um, more local, more closer to the consumer, to the end user. Um, and thus, thus, and thus, less reliant on these large supply chains that typically source and, and grow only cer- certain crops, either on the West Coast or Mexico or Latin America or elsewhere, and are dependent upon that, right? Um, so, I think you're seeing a real. It's an interesting time to be in food and ag. You're starting to see some really fundamental changes on um, uh, how ag production is is done, where it's done, um, and how it's um, you know, and and what role innovation and technology can play and and getting the consumer more connected to that value chain so especially like in big cities like um, I come from a big city Osaka Zambia you consider Chicago New York big cities like that where um, it's kind of like you're like you're very removed from agriculture even sourcing like fresh produce and like getting like good vegetables at a reasonable price it's kind of hard so when you think about this um, platform that's going to be able to connect you with your local farmer and be able to like get you um, healthy food and gross um, and produce kind of like makes you think about like how it's going to impact it on that large scale, especially like heading into like 2050, 2030. Um, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but it's, it's going to be crazy. The amount of people living in cities and we think about the environment, like controlled envi- controlled environment agriculture, like you said, which is just like producing um, vegetables and fresh produce and the like a greenhouse where you control the environment, the, the climate. So when you think about that, you think about the impacts and they have, but I was reading, I was like um, reading this article on LinkedIn and the author was saying that even though like controlled environment agriculture seems like it's going to be hot and like there's going to be so much going on with it. How do you, how do you get these licensing agreements with um, where people actually buy their groceries from? Because like it is, it is kind of easy to set up, like get a not easy, but it is kind of easy, like get a container set up, like um, get something going on. But the thing is, like the end, like the end consumer. You know, I, I think you bring up a, a point that's worth exploring, which I think I see. I, I'm starting to see the food and ag value chain or ecosystem move towards, which is customization, um, customization of um, food. Um, the inputs that are required to grow those things. You see a lot of that with with movement and startups like Benson Hill out of St. Louis, which acquired a, a large soy processing um, facility in Iowa because they're, they're, a, they're a startup that works on CRISPR technology. So they're basically in the gene editing space where they can, you know, turn on and turn off traits in soy or, or a number of different commodity crops. So for them, they're working on um, working on specific varieties that meet certain markets, right? Whether that's animal feed or, or you know, all protein or, or elsewhere, right? And I think you're see, starting to see that increased push from the consumer that they want to be able to um, have their own experience, I think, with when they go to the grocery store, right? They want to be able to buy the, the foods that they like, that they, that they like, and that, that are um, functional for their diet, for their lifestyle, for, for whatever that is. So I, I think what, what you see here is that you know eventually these these value chains and supply chains in food and ag are going to have to have to 
um, have to and are currently um, adapting to meet that, right? No longer are we going to be able to grow thing, grow crops or raise animals in bulk um, to meet, um, you know, a, a consumer consumer market on a on a mass scale basis or just assume that all consumers are created equal right they all want their red meat the same way or they all want their you know their um their grains or their vegetables the same way um it's it's changing it's ever it's changing evolving i think the startups and the innovators that are quick to to recognize that and recognize that um customizing and, and creating that 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 customized experience for the consumer user they'll be the ones that you'll read about emerging um, as the new big brands um, if you will right and that they'll they'll be the ones kicking off the the legacy food brands that unfortunately if they don't adapt they will die so it's kind of interesting though how you said that it's um people's um people's consumer um, people's consumer preferences are customizing and um companies are kind of shifting their focus for me um I think about agriculture and ag being global. I don't think many people realize that most of the um, food that's grown here gets shipped to China and all over around the world. Food that's um, beef that's raised in South America kind of ends up on their plate and everywhere around the world. So when you say that, I kind of think, how does that impact? How's that going to impact global trade flows? And like when we spoke, when we first met, we talked about how a good, like a good ag tech company is one that's able to scale. And scale is like relative, but um, competing with legacy brands, like I, 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 I'm interested in seeing how that interaction plays, if that makes sense. No, that, that, that is a good point. And, you know, for us at the Yale Lab, when we invest in, in startups, we look at those that have the potential to not only scale, you know, in their home market, but globally, um, you know, and, we, and you've looked it up. We've got a couple of startups that are, I, I think, poised to do that. Um, it's funny you brought up uh, the global part of that because um, one region of the world that we see a ton of activity um, right now is Latin America, Latin America and the Caribbean. There's a ton of, of startup activity. And because they share a lot of commonalities with the U.S., whether that's um, commodity production or animal livestock production or um, consumer behaviors, et cetera, they're poised and really, I think, in a, in a great position to scale um, into North America where, um, where, they're, where they're, I think there's, a, there's an interesting development going on in, in Latin America where you've got a ton of really sharp technical and business talent, um, you know, incubating out of, you know, universities or, or ecosystems in, in places like Brazil or Argentina or Chile. Um, and they're looking for, you know, you know, broader and greater opportunities, right, to, 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 solve some of these global food and ag problems and you know unfortunately in in the and the still that part of the world is still considered the, the developing world so there while there's capital and while there's resources they know that ultimately in order to really really you know scale scale to a, a global brand or a global um a solution us the us is the the check the check box they got to meet right you know when you do that then then you're um and then you're poised to to go into the Europe, into Europe, and you're poised to go into Asia, and then you're poised elsewhere, right? Um, I think I think for what we look at is we we look at technology, we look at you know not a one size fits all when we look at startups or innovations on 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 things that we want to invest in or what we want to work more closely with. We try to look at it from a um, you know a holistic perspective and recognize that um, you know solutions that fit in Latin America might not fit in North America. 
but that doesn't mean with a little bit of you know tutelage and resources and support that we can provide that they can't you know that they can't pivot or they can't you know modify the the path if you will and that's what we try to do you know we try to do as a as a firm beyond providing the capital but it's also providing the strategic support um to get them there um you know for us you know we're, we're always looking globally to source you know innovations and, and startups in another region of the world you know that we're keenly interested in that you know is is you know quite frankly um underreported or not well i won't say underreported but um underinvested from a food and ag perspective is Africa. You know, Africa is a really, really interesting um, place. You see a ton of um, NGO um, or, or, you know, nonprofit dollars go go into the continent to fund either projects or research. But there is that, um, as we call it, the the middle gap in finance, the lack of um, getting them from incubation or research from seed to you know, series A or series B or later stage where they start to get customers or revenue, especially in food and ag. Um, and I think that has to do just with the lack of um, awareness and knowledge of, uh, you know, what's, what's there, what's there with respect to innovation and ag tech from the global ag, from the global investor and stakeholder community. So we're, we're, we're keenly focused on, on regions like that because they're going to play a key role, um, you know, in food and ag production, right? If we're going to, unfortunately, you know, we're, we're, we're going to, you know, run, run out of probably sources of soy or other commodities from, from regions like Brazil, right, where they're burning up the Amazon forest, which is definitely not a, um, a great environmental message. You know, does that mean Africa starts to pick up some of that, um, some of that supply, you know, for crops like that, right? Or or does, you know, non-arable land or land that's been out of, you know, out of agriculture production for um history, you know, in Africa, does that get repurposed into other, um, other crops, right? Other crops other than cocoa or coffee or, or, you know, other, other things like that. Right. So we'll see, we'll see. That's an, it's an, it's an interesting thing we're keeping tabs on. It's funny. Um, it's funny though, you say Africa, um, being from Zambia, like, um, especially like growing up in Zambia and my experience, like there's certain brands and food products, especially like growing up in the internet age, like, you know, like, those Doritos ads, those Lay's ads, like there were certain food products that just translated everywhere across the world. And um, especially like in Zambia and Africa, but obviously like the way they translated, their translation was different, but the message still came across. So I'm interested in seeing how the internet plays in marketing, like these new, these new innovative ag food products. Yeah, well, I'm curious to ask you what's your perspective on you know, why, why is that? Why were, why are brands like, you know, Lay's or Coca-Cola have been able to, you know, get, you know, be mass marketed or be successful in a place like Africa? What, what, why do you think that is from your perspective? Coca-Cola was like very popular, even before I was born. Like my granddad used to drink Coca-Cola. My dad practically drinks Coke and I'm more of a fancy guy, but still under the same company. But I know some of my friends who love Coke, Mm -hmm. I guess with, I could speak for like, from my experience, like um, with my grandpa it was like synonymous with like, oh, like you've made it kind of. And like, it was like, kind of like a thing of like, oh, like you get, you get a taste of like Western life and um, the American, I'm going to say the American dream, but uh, the Western experience of like, oh, like you've, like your, like your socioeconomic bracket has increased so you can afford this. And then it just, it translated from a status symbol, like being the only player and just like the one everyone has to drink, like it's Coke. 
So if that makes sense. And then with my generation was like, uh, you can drink like the home, like obviously like their homegrown brands that are there, but then you've got Coke, which is, I wouldn't say better, but the quality, I would say the quality is better than homegrown. So I am. Yeah. That's really interesting. You bring that up. So, so Coke or, or Western brands like that were almost, they provided a level of like social currency, right? It was like, Oh, you, yeah. you're drinking something that, you know, the, the Westerners are drinking, right. You know, you, yeah. you're, you're, it's okay. Huh. That's really interesting. Um, did Coke, does, is Coke actually relatively expensive or inexpensive? You know, like in, in Zambia or something? Inexpensive. Well, in Zambia and in most Southern, most African countries. Okay. But now, so like, it's not, it's, not, it's not really an expensive product, right? It's not like, oh, you, okay. Huh. But I guess the quality as well is pretty good. <laughs> That's interesting. Okay. That's really, really interesting. But like with the internet, like the internet for my generation, especially, it kind of made like everyone, like everyone's experiences, like when I talk to my friends here in college, like we're kind of like around the same age as me. For the most part, most of our experiences are the same. Like we kind of listen to the same music. Like we watched the same movies, same TV shows growing up, especially like food products kind of different. Like your version of Quaker Oats was jungle oats for us, but still kind of the same. So Mm -hmm. I'm interested in seeing like how internet, the internet's going to play a big role in marketing food and ag products, especially like seeing how digitalized ag is becoming. Mm -hmm. Like how do you translate that to the consumer? Like, how's that? Because that's effectively, that's effectively going to make your brand global. Yes. Yes. Being able to, to get it, you know, in front of the, the end user or have it right here, you know, with their, with their smartphone, be able to either, you know, purchase it or, or, you know, get it, get it shipped to them. Right. Yeah. Um, that's a great, that's a great point. Um, I think, you know, what I see in that space is, is increasingly more and more, um, you know, the brands that I think that are more transparent, like I said, with where, with how they make their goods or where they source their inputs, et cetera, are going to be the ones that folks, um, you know, folks like you or your generation are going to want to buy and want to trust, right? I think, you know, you can, you can speak to this probably from, you know, your, your demographics perspective. I think they want to know that the, the brands that they buy are, are, you know, um, you know, doing things the right way, right? You know, they're growing things the right way. They're not, you know, um, harvesting things using, things using, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, child slave labor. You know, unfortunately, that's a that's an issue with um, a number of different crops like palm oil around the world. Um, you know, the, you know, to be able to, to to make that claim that say, you know, we we grow things the right way, we harvest it the right way, we don't think, do things that are harmful to people and to the environment. I think is a um, a strong message that brands now have to communicate and, you know, global brands now recognizing they can't hide from that anymore. Right. You know, they can't hide um, from the big robust value chains and not communicate to the consumer how, how things get made and how they get to you, you know, in your grocery aisle. Um, those days, those days are over. Eventually, you know, you get found. Right. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, that's been driven by, you know, you know, consumers of, of you know, your age and, and, and upwards that um, want to know that, you know, they want to know that. I mean, just touching back to what you said earlier, like um, like how crops can be grown, like the replacement of like, oh, like hot regions in Africa that are able to grow cocoa, soybeans, corn, places in Brazil. 
it's kind of becoming a thing of where like what can you what how can you make that of value not just grow the commodity crop itself and it is and even here in itself like the states is kind of leading it in like developing technology and like you're kind of seeing more entrepreneurialism in ag in agriculture like obviously with ag tech and that coming up but something i talk about with my friends and something we wish we knew earlier was like like how many like how much like innovation is coming up how much like of an entrepreneur you're able to be at this point in time obviously like it's always been there i just wanted to talk to you about like the importance of like incubators and like incubators are going to be in fostering innovation and innovation in ag and developing ag tech companies that are able to like scale and add value yeah incubators and accelerators are going to play an important role um you know for us we try to work with and and have cooperative engagements with those types of organizations, um, you know, around, around the world and in regions like Latin America or Caribbean. Um, you know, one thing that we do notice that, you know, particularly um, in Africa, get back to the Africa example, there's no shortage of incubators, accelerators there on continent, right. As you're aware of, um, you know, there's tons of them that, you know, churn out um, new FinTech technologies or, or new consumer tech or, or any number of different things. But what we do see is a lack of, I think expertise within these accelerators and incubators for food and ag, um, you know, for food and ag um, solutions and markets and be and end uses. So I think that's where we want to play a, a key role because we do have that knowledge of, of scale and growth of these type of technologies, admittedly in, in North America. But I think those principles, you know, are, are the same um, globally. But but there's there's a you know an importance there. There's an importance there to work with organizations like that, and even work with the universities in country or in the region, right, that are working on really interesting or novel research, like, you know, your Illinois State gentlemen on, on Covercrest, that's a key component to it. Um, it's a key component to it to work with groups like that, because they could be researching or doing something that might have really interesting commercialization potential, or it could be a product, or it could be a service, or it could be, a, you know, its own venture. But as you know, you know, researchers and academics are focused on that, you know, they're focused on the research aspect. And don't, you know, quite frankly, um, give a lot of thought to what, what type of commercialization potential um, do is, you know, is what they're researching have, you know, and, and that's where working with a group like us, we can do that. We can evaluate that, right? We can evaluate that and we can help be supportive if that's, if that's the path. So. Well, even in the Midwest, like so far, like if you bring it, if we bring it locally to like the America, well, even in the Midwest, you've got St. Louis and aside from that, like they're not many places. Um, you're seeing um, develop like incubators. Yeah, no, there, there, there is, there's a, definitely been a, a rush of incubators or accelerators, at least in North America or um, the developed world for food and ag, just because, you know, ag food and ag tech is the hot topic right now. Right. It, it, you know, it's, it's really, really interesting. It's, it's sexy. It's still a very emerging or nascent space. Um, but I think the key there is, is, you know, having a, an accelerator incubator that actually provides, you know, structured value or structured support. There's a ton of them that have you go through the paces of a lot of the same type of activities. So, um, you know, put together a pitch deck, you know, um, this is how you build a, you know, a, a balance sheet, you know, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of the basics you could either learn if you wanted to spend the money to go to business school to do that or teach yourself. Um, but, you know, the incubators or accelerators are, in my opinion, meant to be a, a, a conduit for these startups to connect to strategic partners, right? You know, so if you're a, an equipment innovator, 
you know, you want to talk to people like John Deere, right? And can those incubators or accelerators provide that, right? Provide that platform to do that. That's where I think the, the key value really lies in these programs and the ones that can do that differentiate themselves. We try to, we try to focus on that, right? Rather than, um, you know, dialing down your, your pitch, you know, your pitch, your pitch deck, which, which are important. Um, but we feel that, you know, the, the, the value is in, is in that the strategic introductions in the network. So. Is that the key difference you see? Like, cause you see like right now, from my perspective, I'm seeing so much capital flood into ag tech from like these legacy companies established VC funds that are investing and other VC funds specifically for ag. Is that like the main difference? Uh, the main difference you see, like being able to like make like part, being able to like provide partnerships with um, founders and companies, and being able to connect them, being able to connect them um, with other players in the game. Well, yeah, there is that that interesting kind of dichotomy between you know external VC firms or you know accelerators like us that do it ourselves, or in-house corporate venture groups, right? That think they get all oh, that you know. What's interesting about them is they typically will hire a guy from our, like our group or other VCs and, and, you know, build their own in-house unit because they think they can do it better themselves. And, you know, in some cases, yeah, they can, they can pick some good winners, but, you know, I would argue firms like us that have been doing it for quite a while and doing it when it went, when it quite frankly, wasn't sexy and there wasn't a lot of capital being pushed to ag tech. We understand, we understand the space. Um, but I think where corporate venture groups can provide value is, of course, they can work with a handful of innovators and have pilots, have pilots or have, you know, targeted engagements for those that they want to work with. Right. We, we as a firm obviously can't do that. We don't have the, the infrastructure, the resources to be able to do that. But we can make the connections to the corporates for strategics that, that can do that. But that's where I think they they, they can provide that value. Um, I will argue and I will continue to argue and start in terms of a strict um, venture capital um, play and picking and, and being able to provide value. Um, the external firms, I guess, we do it better than the corporate ones. But so. um, are there any new are there any new companies you're working on right now that um, you want to talk about or that you see potential in? Um, you know, there's a, there's a few. Um, you know, I'll, I'll leave you with this. There is one that's we're working with out of Costa Rica called Clearleaf, and they've developed a a biological. Um, a bio, a natural biological um, that deals with, um, you know, a, a, that's a insecticide or herbicide um, that actually was derived from a, an application or a, 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 a lotion, if you will, from the cosmetic industry is a really, really interesting technology. Um, and they've been able to test it and pilot it on um, specialty crops like banana, um, you know, citrus, and they're looking to do that um, in other crops. The thing with them is, you know, they've, that when you're dealing with biologicals or, or herbicides like that, you've got to go through obviously all the environmental regulatory you know, things to be get approved to even spray it or even use it on crops. So they've been able to do that in Central America and actually in Europe. But the next step for them is North America, um, and, you know, trying to be able to, to get the EPA's approval or something like that's quite a long, long task. But I, I think they're onto something here. And I think if they're able to get into North America, um, they can be an interesting bio, uh, biological solution. Um, you know, that, that challenges some of the bigger incumbents like Syngenta or Cortiva. And likely what will happen is Syngenta or Cortiva will probably buy them, buy them out and say, you know, we'll acquire you rather than let them get to anywhere close to market. So, yeah. Yeah, it benefits you and the founders at the end of the day. But um, that's a whole nother conversation we can go into because I'm so interested in biologicals in that space. But um, I'm just going to hit you with some quick hitters and um, we can end this. But yeah. 
So um, Quick Hitters, favorite music album of all time. Oh, wow. Uh, gosh. Seconds, three, two, one. I'd probably say um, uh, probably Tupac. Tupac, I can't, I can't think of his um, uh, one of his album, one of his, one of his, one of my favorite albums from him, but anything from him, absolutely. West Coast, West Coast roots showing there. Um, if yeah. you could have, if you could have dinner with any five guests, who would they be? Ooh, well, one would be Abe Lincoln. Um, Elon Musk would be a current one. Um, Joe Rogan would be another. <laughs> Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo would be another. Wow. And oh gosh, uh, probably probably JFK. That's an interesting lineup. Um, yeah, probably JFK. Last one. If you could be, if you could really relive any sports historical moment, which one would it be? Oh. Huh. Uh, well, it would have to be, it actually have to be one from my alma mater, the, uh, the play where, uh, Stanford kicked it off to Cal and then we ran it back and, uh, the guy that scored a touchdown ran over the, uh, the Stanford band when the Stanford band was on there. Um, that was way, way before I was born, but I've heard from alumni who were there at the game. They said that was like the craziest game ever. So I would, I would, yeah, I would love, love to have been there, you know, because, Stanford's my rival, so that's a good one. Thank you for your time, Brandon. And um, yeah, appreciate this. I hope you have a good year and stay safe. Yeah, thank you, Joseph. Really appreciate it.